Hey there, it's Captain Roger from the Grass Valley Corps of the Salvation Army here in beautiful Grass Valley, California. Thank you all for joining us on our worship in study time today. Grace and peace to each and every one of you. I saw a cartoon this week with a man lying in bed saying, I want peace, but I don't want to have to do anything for it. Well, perhaps you've heard, relationships take work. That's something we're reminded of frequently in Scripture. In fact, we are also reminded that community requires mindfulness, and we are encouraged to live in community. Everything in all of the Hebrew and Christian Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, all points to our need to live in community. We need to seek out how we can do that. Jeremy Bentham said, There are two types of people in this world, those who divide the world into two types and those who do not. And yeah, well, uh, Susie Kasem said, when two brothers are busy fighting, an evil man can easily attack and rob their poor mother. Mankind should always stay united, standing shoulder to shoulder so that evil can never cheat and divide them. And I think that's a lot closer to the uh, scriptural uh, view of the world. Um, religion, religion seems to be one of those great dividing forces in the world. More than 300 years ago, Bishop Gilbert Burnett wrote, There is scarce a more unaccountable thing to be imagined than to see a company of men professing a religion, one great and main precept whereof is mutual love, forbearance, gentleness of spirit, and compassion to all sorts of persons, and agreeing in all the essential parts of its doctrine, and differing only in some less material and more disputable things, yet maintaining those differences with zeal so disproportioned to the value of them, and prosecuting all that disagree from them with all possible violence. In short, why don't Christ followers, sworn to love neighbor and enemy alike, follow Christ? We divide over the smallest of things. Did you know there are more than 45,000 Christian denominations now? Why? What a waste of resources and talent, all working separately on our goal of winning souls to unity in the kingdom of God by holding us, by, by holding up our own way as if it's the best way and subtly or directly denying that the others have the same kind of heavenly connections. It, it's foolishness. John Wesley once had this dream where he was transported into hell on some kind of visitor's tour. And at the gates, he asked, Oh, are there any Presbyterians here? Yes, came the answer. And then he asked, Are there any Baptists, any Episcopalians, any Methodists? And the answer was yes, each time. Wesley was very much distressed, but then he was ushered up to the gates of heaven, and there he asked the same questions, and the answer was no. No, Wesley asked. Well, who then is inside? And the answer came back, Oh, there are only Christians here. Now, as we've been following the story that Luke is laying out in the book of Acts, we've seen how even the early church struggled as it worked through this difficult task of integrating the teachings of Jesus into the daily lives of his followers. Rather than following a designated set of rituals and requirements, followers of the way of Jesus were expected, hold on to your seats, they were expected to love one another, and everyone else too, that is way harder. And there were some real struggles as people from cultures which had been enemies for generations found themselves worshiping side by side, sometimes metaphorically, but often in person, right there next to each other. But they were one in Christ, so they had to learn to be one people in the kingdom that Christ had invited them into. Well, how did they do that? In our modern world and culture, 
we are as fractured as those ancient people ever were. What can we learn from them to help us learn how we could strive together instead of fighting amongst ourselves? How can we show the same unified witness to the benefits of putting our faith in Jesus instead of the backbiting, situational, me-first morality most people see when they look at the tattered fragments of what was once the unified people of God in Christ? You know how sometimes people miss out on the forest because they get so focused on all the trees that they see around them? Same thing happens when we read the Bible. We often get so caught up in the big stories that we miss all the in-between stuff. It's those bits and pieces that were put in between the main passages that get preached on week after week um, that really appeal to me. Some people just skip past them. Others skim past them to get to the good stuff that they know is ahead. But when we do that, we might miss something really important, something that we could learn from like today's passage from the second half of Acts chapter 18, it's a flyby section, all right? People usually just fly right by it on their way into the next good stuff in Acts 19. But Acts 18 here in the second half has some good reminders of how to establish and maintain community among a group, even a far-flung one with people spread across an ever-growing area. And it also shows us an example of how to deal with the little things, a, a way that doesn't lead to schism or a new denomination being formed, one that we would do well to listen to and learn from in our actions today. So let's get into it. We're going to Acts chapter 18, and we're going to start at verse 18. Let me give you just a quick, quick catch up for uh, those of you who haven't been with us uh, week to week here. Paul, remember, he's been in Corinth for the better part of two years. He's been introducing people to Jesus. He's been building the church there. He'd met a couple uh, who were very much like him in many ways. They were tent makers of Jewish extraction and faith. They knew Jesus, and they were strong and effective teachers who lived out that message of Jesus in their daily lives, as well as in the things that they said. Now, Priscilla, the uh, wife, she was the lead teacher. <clears throat> She seems to have been the lead in their faith community as well, but she and Aquila, her husband, they're always spoken of as partners when they're mentioned, so we shouldn't imagine he's any less a preacher or community leader than his wife. Luke holds them up as equals in his telling of the history, and Paul seems to be built up and encouraged by their partnership. But none of the three of them had come to Corinth to stay permanently. That brings us to where we're at here, verse 18 in chapter 18 of Acts. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Cenchreae because of a vow he had taken. Now, we, we don't know much about this vow, like why or exactly when he took it, but there are some things we can say about it which help explain some of what's happening in the next few verses. So let me run over that, all right? A Nazarite vow is a Jewish custom that was established in the law of Moses. Numbers chapter 6 has a lot to say about this kind of vow, if you're curious. It was done as a part of a, a special vow or commitment to the Lord, and the Nazarite was to avoid any alcohol or fermented beverages or food, along with any kind of grapes, grape juice, or raisins, while they were participating in this. They also weren't allowed any near... Uh, allowed any near... They were not allowed near 
any dead bodies, even if it was a close relative that they normally would have had responsibility for. And they were not to cut the hair on their head at all during the time of the vow, not even a trim. And when the vow was over, the hair was to be cut and then offered as a sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem, along with the other offerings of thanks to God. Now, Luke seems to be leading us to think that Paul took this vow early in his time at Corinth, probably as a result of receiving that vision from God that he was to stay and preach there for a time. It would have been a sign of his gratitude and also a way of reaching out to his Jewish brothers and sisters by showing them that he still believed in and followed important customs of his people, even though his faith in Christ meant that he no longer thought that all of those things were necessary. Right? So it was a way for Paul to show that they could still be unified. Right? He's making the effort to close the rift. Now, that's a lot of talking about him getting a haircut, right? So, we'll move on. Oh, oh, I should probably point out, he probably had the time to get this haircut because they were waiting for their ship to be ready to sail. All right? Verse 19. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. Right, spoiler alert, he'll be back. But why did he rush off, leaving his companions behind? Well, I think that they stayed because there was interest in Jesus, and they wanted to help establish the faith there. I think Paul rushed off because he was trying to bring his vow to completion. Wait, I hear you thinking, didn't he do that by cutting his hair? No, no, no. Remember, there's a final step, that offering. He needed to take his hair that had been cut to the temple to present with his other sacrifices. And while he may have been able to wait another few weeks to do that, he was trying to get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. And that journey, it wasn't complicated, but it really wasn't simple either, especially not this year. See, it was uh, AD 52. That's 52 of the Common Era, for those of you who uh, prefer those letters, CE rather than AD. Sailing the Mediterranean at that time was dependent entirely on the winds and weather, and it wasn't safe to go out at just any time. The sailing season opened between March 5th and 10th, and Passover was happening in early April. So, Paul had to get to Jerusalem, but he wasn't sailing to Jerusalem because the city is on a mountain more than 30 miles inland from the coast. Uh, not that you could go straight to Jerusalem from the coast either, but um, Paul's journey was going to take him to Caesarea by ship, and then he had another 65 plus miles on foot to reach the city. He couldn't hang around in Ephesus if he was going to make it to Jerusalem for Passover. So Priscilla and Aquila stayed, and Paul kept moving. Look at verse 22. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, I know, I know Luke said he greeted the church in Jerusalem, but it was a little more than that. The traditions around completing the Nazarite vow meant that Paul was going to be in that city for a month or more which honestly wasn't really too much longer than most people who came in for the Passover. I mean, between the preparation days and the feast days and packing up and arranging provisions to travel home, a quick turnaround was already half a month. 
right? So Paul just started and hung around a little longer. And while he was there, he reported to the main Christian church, which was still in Jerusalem. At this point, it was led by James, the brother of Jesus. And we've seen before, he and Paul approached their faith in very different ways. But we've also seen that the love of Christ is strong in them. And so when they had conflict, they found a middle ground, which they steered the members of the church to follow rather than dividing over the issues. All right. And from there, from Jerusalem, Paul went on to Antioch the church that had sent him out on his journey. And he was there for a while, but then he was soon back on his way out. This, by the way, this was Paul's pattern for his travel and his teaching. He always checked in with the main elders in Jerusalem. As we saw in Acts 15, this was to keep them all in agreement on what was being taught about Jesus and why. And he would spend time with his home church in Antioch, which wasn't too far away. He'd start there and he would end there. And he took some time to rest and to share what he'd seen and done and taught. And then he would set out again. Because it was also his habit to go revisit the places he had been. He went to strengthen the folks in those places, to see how they were doing, and to encourage them to remain true to Jesus in all things. So he always started in Antioch. He, always, he would travel. He would make con converts or, and establish new bodies of believers. And then he would report to the elders and to his home church. And then he would set out and revisit those churches to be sure all is well before moving on to his next locations. Now, why does Luke share that? And why am I taking time to emphasize it so strongly today? Well, because this is Paul staying accountable and keeping contact with his leaders, his partners, and the churches he had a part in establishing. He's not some lone wolf who goes and sets things up his own way without any oversight or assistance. He is following Jesus with guidance from those who had known Jesus longer. He's telling people what he did so that they could know he was staying true to the mission. And he's not setting people up in these far-flung places and leaving them. He's staying in contact. He's making sure he's helping them answer questions. He's keeping them accountable, helping them focus on the example of Jesus. Community requires mindfulness. All these things he's doing help keep him in community with each of these bodies and helps the churches all remain in community with one another as they remain in community with God, right? And we see that when he sets out on this particular journey, Paul is going back to the churches in Asia Minor and the surrounding area. He'll get back to Greece in time, but right now he's focused on heading around and then back to Ephesus if God is willing. But we'll get to that another time because there is one more example of community building and an approach to unity that I want to share. It's in the last few verses of chapter 18. So if you haven't flipped there already, get to Acts chapter 18. We're going to look at verse 24. <clears throat> verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. Now, let's talk through this real quick here. Alexandria was in the northern coast 
of Egypt. All right. And it had a large Jewish colony there. Apollos was a well-educated man. He was skilled in formal rhetoric and teaching. That's uh, what the Greek literally says about him. Uh, there is some evidence he may have been a student of Philo, the uh, great Jewish philosopher and historian. Philo taught that faith needs to adapt to new cultural challenges and surroundings, which is fascinating to Bible geeks like me, but I'll spare you at least for now. Apollos seems to have been a Christian before he arrived in Ephesus, but his knowledge seems to have been incomplete. He needed more information to bring him from knowing the truth to understanding it. Um, one of my roles in the Salvation Army has been as a disaster response specialist and a trainer. But for the first 10 years I was teaching people, I referred to myself as the best trained, least experienced disaster guy that we had. I taught what I had been taught to teach, but I had never actually been part of a disaster response. I even had full training as a responder in case of a pandemic, but I received that training in 2009 as part of a whole cadre of people who didn't really believe we would ever need that kind of knowledge in the United States. COVID, when it came along 10 years later, that changed completely how I understood the tools and responsibilities of responding to a pandemic. Just like responding to the destruction of a neighborhood by a gas pipe explosion changed my understanding of what it meant to do emotional and spiritual care for people who had lost everything. And just like my first trip to bring meals and hydration to the frontline responders in a large-scale forest fire changed how I understood what our purpose in doing that was. And responding to wildfire evacuations changed the way I viewed our work in emergency shelters with people who had escaped places like Paradise or Santa Rosa or the Napa fires that had taken everything from them but their lives. Sometimes, bare knowledge isn't enough to create understanding. <coughs> Excuse me. Sometimes there's more you need to understand about the things you know in order for them to really make sense, all right? The New International Version translation that we're using says that Apollos spoke with great fervor. The, uh, the Greek says that he was uh, enthusiastic in spirit, which is a phrase Luke is using to let us know that Apollos has the Holy Spirit in him. He is a full believer in Christ. He has received the Spirit as we all do, but Apollos doesn't know about that. He only knew about the water baptism that John the baptizer had been doing, dunking people as a way to show they had repented of their old ways and that they were now focusing on what it means to follow God. Apollos didn't realize he had become a new creation with God's spirit placed in him, right? He has arrived at Ephesus. He knows Jesus is the Messiah. He wants to make sure people hear what he knows, so he does what Jewish teachers do, what we've seen Paul do in every place he has gone. He visits the synagogue. Look at verse 26. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now, I said there was an example of what it means to be mindful of staying in community. This is it. Uh, you may have missed it. That's all right. Pay attention, though. When they heard someone speaking about Jesus 
and what it means to be a follower of the way. But that guy wasn't quite right in what he was saying. What did they do? Did they, A, call him out in front of everyone, pointing out his lack of understanding? Did they, B, make a social media post calling him an idiot? C, did they advocate for removing him from the community as a false teacher? Or D, did they invite him to a private and friendly meeting to exchange ideas by hearing his story and sharing their own? Yeah, it was the last one, huh? And Luke is really saying they aren't trying to change what he taught. They are adding knowledge he didn't have before. They are not correcting him. They are helping add to what he knows. And they offered it to him in a way that was very intentional in its approach. This is a a gathering that's meant to grow their relationship, to build up their community. What would our world look like if everyone did that instead of the things that we do now? What if, what, what, yeah, let's, let's see, let's put it this way. What it looked like for Priscilla and Aquila and the faith community at Ephesus is that it looked like they gained a partner and the kingdom of God then gained many new members as a result. And when Apollos was ready to move on, He did so with the full support and encouragement of his community and as a result of the community that he went to as well. So that's that's what happened when they reached out to bridge this gap. All right. Um, I I don't think I mentioned this, but scripture is pretty clear that they they didn't see what they were doing as correcting him. They saw it as adding to his knowledge, right? So he hadn't known what was going on with the spirit. So they just let him know, hey, did you know Jesus said about the Holy Spirit? And this is what has been said. And this is what we've seen. And this is what these experiences were. And this is what you are demonstrating in your life. And now you know and he's like oh i get it i understand and i know it might seem like i'm reading into this but when you read this book and you read the paul's letters that refer to these guys these are all things that you will pick out and i'm sure that you will go and look all that up please do um now when apollos is moving on Uh, Check the last two verses of Acts 18. It says, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia and the brothers and sisters. Sorry, I'm already misreading scripture. That's never a good sign. This is why you should look this stuff up for yourself. Don't just trust me. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scripture that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, y'all remember where Achaia is, right? It's in central Greece. Where Apollos is going is Corinth. He's going to Corinth, the community that Priscilla and Aquila came from. And he built up that community. And by the grace of God, he added to it by applying his training, his knowledge, and the understanding he had gained from his community in Ephesus. All things that were because of this reaching out and and trying to build up this relationship. In her song, uh, Bad Blood, modern philosopher and psalmist Taylor Swift has this line. Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes. 
well, first I'm going to say nothing is impossible with God, but there is a lot of truth to saying that our actions towards others can cause great wounds that are not easily repaired. If we shoot those or shoot at those that we disagree with or who disagree with us, it's going to be a lot harder to repair that damaged relationship than if we follow the patterns and examples that we've seen in the passage we looked at today. Community requires mindfulness. If we care about the command of Jesus that we are to love others, be they neighbors or enemies, we need to be consciously reaching out in ways that will build those relationships, ways that will bandage the wounds that may already exist rather than adding to them. We need to seek ways to build community in every way possible, starting with the way that we act or react towards others that we encounter in our daily lives. If we think we're only meeting them once, or if we expect them to be part of our lives in any way in the future, it's our responsibility to thoughtfully reach out to build them up. It's your responsibility. But don't worry. The Holy Spirit will give you enthusiasm for the task if you will be open to the possibilities. Now I'm going to let you chew on that for this week before we move on any further. It's these in-between pieces of scripture that sometimes are the hardest for us to think through, to examine, and to take into our day-to-day world, which is what we are supposed to do with the things that we learn, with those spiritual things. Everything is supposed to be spiritual. Everything. There is no church time, secular time divide. It's all supposed to be one So I want you to go out and try to figure out how are you going to integrate that into your life? How are you going to work to build unity with the people around you? How are you going to work to take what is good in the things that they have, they know that they can do, and to integrate that into your expression of the love that Christ commanded each of us to show to those around us? All right? So... You do that. I'm going to uh, close our time this morning, or whatever time you're watching this, by saying this. Wherever you are, wherever you think you've got to in life, you have nothing to fear. Because God is with you. God is already there. You can't go anywhere that God isn't. So, go with God. Go in peace. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week. I'll see you next time.